One of the lessons that God wants us to learn during the Days of Unleavened Bread is that it's a seven-day period. And like the Feast of Tabernacles, it represents a period of time. The time involved during the Days of Unleavened Bread actually are about the process of our growth, our first being called by God uh, through the Passover, and then literally being brought out of this world but then proceeding toward His kingdom and ultimately our salvation. And when you study the nation of Israel as they travel through the wilderness, one very clear lesson is that they lost perspective in their relationship to God. Today I would like to help us consider our perspective and I hope be encouraged by God's promises by the commitment He's made to us as those that He's called out and that He has separated. Now, the obstacles that Israel went through were very large. They were great. And many times they did not see how they could overcome the barriers in front of them. To me, it's a good analogy would be of looking at a mountain and from a distance... It's very easy to see the peak and sometimes even to see what would be a good route. But as you draw near that mountain, the perspective changes. And the closer you get, you actually come to the point where you no longer see the entire mountain. All you see are the hills and the valleys that in the distance may not have been so visible. But as you draw close, you see those hills and valleys, they fill your sight. And the actual peak of the mountain or the summit is no longer even visible, even on a clear day. Now, to climb that mountain, you determine a route. And as you actually get on its very surface, sometimes all you can see is exactly what's in front of you. You're no longer able to see below you, and at times no longer able to see very far in front of you, especially as you go through an area of forestation. And if you're climbing a very high mountain, you'll break out of that. And then you see again, you get another perspective. But it's quite often at that point, you'll enter to an area where if it's a cloudy day or if the weather's correct or proper, uh, you will have fog. And so again, you lose perspective. In that kind of endeavor, you have to have a goal. You have to know what you're doing. And you have to be focused with a belief in your ability and the support of the equipment you have, the people that you're with, if it is truly indeed a large mountain. And people who climb Mount Everest or other mountains of challenge in God's creation, they go well prepared. And in the Scripture, God's given us information and assurances to help us to grow, to help us to be well prepared to finish the course of our calling. So I'd like to focus today on one of the very important lessons of understanding our calling, of not to be discouraged because we can't, in our personal lives, get all the leveling out. That's one of the lessons. Because in reality, when you deleaven your home, all of us realize that we're doing the very best we can. And at times later, 
we may come back and find that we missed a crumb or we missed something that was a slice of bread or, or even a loaf of bread. Not because we were careless, but rather simply because we're human. Sometimes things are placed where we would not think to look. And I think God wants us to understand and to be encouraged and inspired and motivated by these days and by the lessons that we see in the Scripture and the promises He's made to us to be successful. Now, one of the very key elements that's important on our part is brought out here in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 14. And it's brought out a very critical time to Israel because they'd gone through many trials, many difficulties, and yet they were at the very gate of the promised land and they lost their perspective. Let's notice here Numbers chapter 14, starting in verse 1. It says, So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. It was a very emotional reaction and very, very discouraging. Now their complaint, verse 2, And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. So they'd become extremely discouraged. It says, Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Now, the reason for this discouragement was they suddenly realized that the challenge in front of them, a challenge which they could only see by their own judgment in terms of what they could do and what they were capable of doing was not something that they could attain by themselves. Now, in this same group of people, as you read the full account, was an individual who had a different perspective. And his perspective wasn't about what he could do, but rather what God had promised. And it was in faith that he exercised this perspective. Let's notice here as Moses addresses the people, and God responds, and how we see from the Scripture the kind of individual and the kind of approach of the one man who had a different attitude and a different perspective than the children of Israel as a whole. In verse 19 of Numbers chapter 14, it says, Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy. Just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt, even until now. Now, this was Moses' request of God, because he had begged God's forgiveness. Because God was very upset. God was going to disinherit and take the lives of these who came with a lack of faith and had only could see themselves and were not looking to God. In verse 20 it says, Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly, as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now ten times and have not heeded my voice. So God looks back over this period of time 
how he had intervened, how he had protected. And they still did not take to heart that there was a living God who was dealing with them, who continued to guide them, who was there. When they faced the trial and when they went through difficulty, it was very easy because they began to look at the human elements, not the hand of God. In verse 23, it says, They certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. And you know, brethren, I know none of us want to be in that position, not regarding our spiritual life and the promise of life eternal. In verse 24, God said to his servant Moses, But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him. Now it's very clear, this is the spirit we want. It says, he, and has followed me fully. I will bring into the I will bring into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. And so the spirit that Caleb had, which was a spirit of faith, a spirit of fully following God, of trusting God, of looking to God's promise, not to himself, not to his own ability. That's the spirit that we want to have. That's the attitude that we want to have. It is the attitude and it's the spirit that will lead us to success. If we notice here in Numbers chapter 13, we read the words of Caleb when he brought his report and we see some of the spirit that he had. Verse 30 of chapter 13 of Numbers. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. So Caleb had a different spirit. He said, We're able. Now, Caleb wasn't looking to himself. He was looking to God. He knew that God would be behind what they were seeking to do. Now, obviously, as you read the account, the obstacles were great. And without God's divine intervention, they physically could not have overcome the inhabitants of this land. These men were giants. And in a physical sense of battle or trying to go against them of their own self, they would not have been successful. And I think it's very important for us to understand spiritually that of and by ourselves we will not be successful. But neither is that God's intent. God wants us to endeavor. Let's notice here in Hebrews chapter 12, God wants us to endeavor, but God also makes it very clear that it is through Jesus Christ. It is through God's miraculous intervention in our lives and His forgiveness that we will have success. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
God wants us to have a spirit of endurance, a spirit of running, not focusing on perhaps at times the pain or the discomfort, but rather the goal that's ahead. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the emphasis that Jesus Christ endured, and he despised the shame because he focused on the joy that was set before him. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. It says, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. So I'd like to, as we go forward in this message, consider what God has done in your life, the promises that he has made, the statements he has made. And part of that's brought out very clearly during the days of leavened bread, as God brought Israel out of Egypt, that he had made a commitment to them. Now, there are statements made, statements that we need to look at that are very, very helpful and inspiring to realize that God will literally give us as a gift the gift of life. So let's look at the beginning. How did you become a part of the church of God? Was it by your hand? No. God very plainly says in John chapter 6, a passage I believe most of us will be familiar with. In John chapter 6 and verse 44, it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. At some time in your life, God, by name, knew who you were and made the decision that this needs to be your time of salvation. When God called you, He was very aware of the physical circumstances of your life, the difficulties and trials of your situation. And He also had a very good understanding of perhaps the challenges that you would face as you went forward with your calling. But nevertheless, God called you. And He called you to salvation. Notice in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. The Apostle Paul wrote to the brethren here in Thessalonica. He says, We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. You were called for salvation. That's God's very purpose in calling you, is to bring you into His family, into His team, under Jesus Christ, to serve and to help others also attain salvation. Now, it's certainly a more difficult time in the society we live. And it's very easy to think that Wow, it would have been a lot easier if God had called me during the 1,000 year reign of Christ. Or what if God waited until the 100 year period? And then all of society would be seeking to obey God. Then when I go up to keep God's holy days, I won't need to ask for time off, or I will not need to uh, 
take special precaution when I go out to eat or I'm out visiting someone, a friend or family, they will all together will be keeping God's days. And the pressure that would be upon us would not necessarily be the peer pressure of those who would want us to break God's laws. The pressure and the direction and the influence of society would be in a very positive manner to encourage us to be obedient to God. The Satan would be removed and out of the way. You realize the majority of people are going to come to salvation when Satan is not a factor? And yet God's called us now. Now, there's some promises in the Bible that we need to look at to understand that God also has given us protection and is dealing with us in a way that He's aware of the time of our calling. But brethren, He's called us for salvation. Notice as we read on here in verse 13, through sanctification by the Spirit. The God has set us apart. And He's done so in this world. The church of God, the people of God, each of us individually have been set apart by God. So we've been set apart by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And that's something I think all of us are very aware of in the things that we believe and how we think. That we do not think as others think. We do not view the world in the manner they do. God's called us and separated us to which He called you by our gospel. God used His servants in preaching and doing His work to call each of us for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've been called to salvation. If we don't see that clearly, it's easy to get bogged down in human weakness the problems and frustrations of daily life. And so the Passover reminds us of our humanity. It reminds us of our sins, the need for forgiveness, the self-examination that we go through that is done with honesty can be discouraging if we only look to ourselves. These days, the days of unleavened bread, lay in front of us the task at hand. The responsibility of growth, the responsibility of commitment. The brethren, in these days is also the assurance, the promise that God will be with us, that He will guide us, and the assurance, brethren, that we will succeed if in faith and in belief of God we proceed in our Christian life. Let's notice in Ephesians chapter 2, it's a passage often used in this world, They quite often only read a portion of it, but it gives us a package. And it's one that is similar to 2 Thessalonians. It gives us a perspective of what God is doing and also what He expects of us. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4, God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God has elevated our lives to a spiritual awareness that is apart from and separate from this world. It's the same awareness that Jesus Christ had 
when He walked this earth. That there is a living God. That we understand His plan and His purpose. Those truths God has given to us. And it has separated us. Verse 7, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God looks upon us with great love, brethren, with His mercy and with kindness. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. And that's important for us to understand. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Does that mean we should not have works? I'm not going to focus on that as we go forward. I'd like to focus on God's commitment and promise to us. But it's also very plain in this passage that God does want us to go forward in good works. That obedience to Him is part of the package that He is sharing and giving to us. That walking in His way of life is the training program that will prepare us for His kingdom. It is the path, the way of life, that prepares us for His family. This is brought out in verse 10. It says, for we are His workmanship. Well, brethren, that workmanship takes place when we follow God's ways. Then God is working in our life. That takes place, that working process takes place and a creation is formed in Christ Jesus. So we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And God's laid out a plan that as mankind responds to it, prepares him for his family. This next part of the verse brings it out. So which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God's laws and His manner of life, the very holy days that we keep, the very practice of putting leavening out, of keeping God's Passover, of washing the feet of our brethren, and having our feet washed and cleansed, and being cleansed by Jesus Christ. This entire process, the physical things we do, they're a part of that training and that preparation. But brethren, it's important we do that with perspective. It's important we don't lose sight of what God is doing. We can become so involved in what we're doing. And we depend upon ourselves and we lose sight of what God's doing. So I'd like to point out to you, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, there were certain a certain emphasis in the statements that God made, the things that He said that are directly associated with these days. And specifically, as we'll see, the the seventh day of the Days of Unleavened Bread that should help us, encourage us, that should give us perspective. Here in Exodus chapter 13, we read God's instruction regarding the Days of Unleavened Bread. And it's interesting, verse 1 of chapter 13, says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. So this occasion, when God had taken the life of the firstborn of the children of Egypt, God also said to Israel, You set apart 
the firstborn. Now we'll see the importance of that as we look later in terms of our calling. Whatever opens the womb before the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. And you can also see in the Scripture that God brought them out on the 15th. That first day of the days of leavened bread was the day of Exodus. It was a day of departure. In verse 5, God speaks of bringing them out, and when they come to the land that God had promised them, a land that would flow with milk and honey, that this service would be kept. In verse 6, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. And so God tells us that for seven days we're to eat unleavened bread. And the church has clearly taught, the living church of God, that we should every day eat unleavened bread, even as we should every day of our Christian life be feeding on Jesus Christ, who is indeed our Passover, and that we need to be spiritually fed, that we can't skip a day, we can't skip a period of time in our life and be nourished. God wants us to realize the need for that nourishment. But notice verse 8. It says, you shall tell your son in that day, saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. God wanted them to remember what he did. It shall be a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. So God reminds them here of what He did. The same thing is actually also brought out, which I skipped over in verse 3. It says, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. So it emphasizes God's action. By His strong hand. Then we'll notice in this same chapter, as we read on, God gave instruction then regarding the firstborn. In verse 13, and I'm going to move through part of this quickly so we can cover all of of the material. It says, But every firstborn of the donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. God wanted the firstborn redeemed, or they were not to be taken. And all the firstborn of man among you, your sons shall redeem. Or excuse me, among your sons, you shall redeem. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? Now this had to do with the instruction also that took place regarding the days of eleven bread. And the question is, why are we doing this? What is this? The response, you shall say to him, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. 
And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrificed to the Lord all males that opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeemed. The God redeemed the firstborn of the children of Israel. And through redemption, there's a lesson to be learned. It says, It shall be a, as a sign on your hand and as frontless between your eyes. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And so there's a very clear emphasis. In fact, in this particular passage, it's mentioned three times that it was by the strength or the power of God that they were brought out, that they were delivered. Now, when you look at the actual deliverance, we know the story of how God brought them out. He took them on a route that led them literally to a point where they had no options. And it was obviously, in a physical sense, would be a very discouraging situation because God led them into a situation where they were, in a sense, trapped by the Red Sea. Now, we can pick up the account, and it's very interesting to read it and think about what took place. Tradition says that the events that we're to read in chapter 14 took place on the seventh day of the Days of Leaven Bread. God had led them to this point, and on this day, this last day of the Days of Leaven Bread, the complete package of seven days, God miraculously delivered them. Now, obviously, they traveled and they walked to this point. They would not have gotten here if they had not walked or traveled or made progress. But when they came to the point of actually being delivered, it was not by their hand. In Numbers 14, we read where literally they were trapped. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew new or drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, they had the same attitude that we read earlier when they faced the difficulties and trials that were before them in Numbers chapter 14. It says, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness. They would rather remain in slavery alive than to find themselves in the situation where they literally thought they would simply be slaughtered. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. 
God, by a strong hand, brought the children out of Egypt. He delivered them. And brethren, He delivered them by the strength of His hand. It's interesting when you go through and read the events that took place. I think many of us perhaps have seen the movie, The Ten Commandments. And it is a dramatic uh, portrayal of those events. And it stirs your heart to realize in the reality that that's not just Hollywood. In fact, Hollywood perhaps uh, cannot paint the true picture of what God did. But just the reality of seeing that take place in, in a portrayal, it is very stirring. I'd like to point out to you what Moses said and the children of Israel when they sang this particular song to the Lord. They, they celebrated what had transpired and what took place. In chapter 15, you read the song of Moses and God's salvation. In verse 2, it says, The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise Him. You read very similar words in the Psalms of David. That he looked to God as his rock and his salvation. He understood that relationship, that dependence. He did not view his life only from a perspective of his own ability or what he was capable of doing. It's also interesting here when you read the last portion of the song, because it did not happen in the lives of the majority of these people. It is a promise to us. In verse 16 it says, Fear and dread will fall on them. That's speaking of those who are the enemies of the children of Israel. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord. Till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You know, in the New Testament, the Bible tells us that we have been purchased. God purchased Israel. And you have been purchased. You are a purchased possession. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. You read this, you realize that we're really looking beyond the physical blessings of a promised land. We're looking to a land that pictures the kingdom of God and the reign of Jesus Christ in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. We really move forward in this song of God's deliverance, His salvation, to promises that extend to what we look for, brethren, and that is the kingdom of God and the return of Jesus Christ and the establishment on this earth of the government of God. God's called us, each of us, to salvation. In Hebrews chapter 12, I'd like to point out that in this analogy of being firstborn and how God redeemed them and how He purchased them. In the New Testament, it says that we're the church of the firstborn. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 23, this was a reference by the Apostle Paul, that when we go before God, that we're a part of a body. 
that we have a legacy in the church of God. Not just at this present time. Brethren, we're a part of a body that Jesus Christ has been dealing with that was established by Christ when He walked this earth. That we literally, when we talk about the apostolic church, in God's eyes, you're a part of that same body. That it's one body. Here in Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 22, Paul says, in terms of coming before God's presence, says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven. God describes the church, His body, as being the firstborn. The Bible also tells us Christ was the firstborn, or the firstfruit. But that terminology also applies to the church of God in this age. It says, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So God, through Paul, inspires Paul to say, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. So God wants us to hear. God wants us to take heed. But he's placed us in a group of people in a category that is identified in the book of Exodus as a people redeemed and purchased by God. We read also in James chapter 1. In James chapter 1 and verse 18, along with this, the Bible uses the terminology of first fruits. And speaking of our calling and of those in the church of God today, it says, of His own will, He brought us forth. See, it's God's decision, His will. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. This day, the seventh day of the Days of Unleavened Bread, is a very important picture, a very important day in terms of teaching us what God is doing in our life and how He has separated us and how He is dealing with us. Just as the Passover and the symbols of the Passover are symbols of life. Those symbols, brethren, are something we partake of, something God has given to us. And that is accomplished through Jesus Christ. You know, it tells us in John chapter 6, when we eat of the Passover, God literally has given us life. Notice in John 6 and verse 54, Here in the Gospel of John. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. You can read a, a very similar uh, passage also in First uh, John. I believe it's chapter 5. That if you have the Son, you have life. In verse 58 of John chapter 6, says, This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. 
God's given us life. He's placed His Spirit within us, which is the very promise of life. It's the earnest, the promise given to you that God will give you life eternal. Now, this is done through Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, notice the very coming of Jesus Christ, part of what would be accomplished by His coming. The power that would be given to those whom God called. In John chapter 1, starting in verse 11, it says, He came to His own. His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. The word right can also be translated. In fact, if you have a marginal reference, uh, you might note that basically is speaking of the domain or the power. God gave us that power, that right, that domain to become children of God. To those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And when you were baptized, God placed His Spirit in you. And that literally is given to you as an earnest of life, a promise and a commitment by the living God. We also know from John's writings that that was God's very purpose in sending His Son, Jesus Christ. It's for your salvation, for my salvation. In John chapter 3, verse 14, you know, so often, because some of these passages are read in Protestant churches, and they read these things, brethren, and they stop there. But nevertheless, this is God's Word. Just because someone else doesn't fully understand it, doesn't take away its truth and its depth of meaning. In John 3, verse 14, it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And when God called you, He revealed to you the real Jesus. The Jesus Christ that walked this earth. Not the one that celebrates Christmas or is involved in the concepts of Easter, but the one literally who kept God's laws and His ways, who is the Savior who will come as King of kings and Lord of lords, and who will reign on this earth, and will lead man to peace and happiness and a fulfillment of his very purpose. But brethren, you have that knowledge. You've been given that insight. You know the real Jesus. And so as we read these words, we realize they apply to us. They apply to God's people and that He is called that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. It's important for us to also keep a perspective. God's called us now, but He loves every man, woman, and child. He loves His potential children. And so, although we have a very special calling, and God's called us out at this time, we should also be humble to recognize it was by His mercy. We should not look down upon others. We should understand God's working and what He's doing. 
that He literally wants to bring all of mankind to salvation. That's one of the wonderful pictures of God's holy days. We've entered into a holy day season that's going to conclude with the message of the last great day, which reveals God's love for all of man. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whatever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. God wants us to retain that perspective. We can go through the trials of trying to climb the problems of daily life. We can go through the difficulties, brethren, of day-to-day struggle. And the Scripture tells us many of the things that we go through are very similar to others. But they're not different than those out in the world. They're very common. But they're different in that God has called us. And we go through those trials with knowledge and understanding of God's purpose. We also read in John chapter 10, and Jesus Christ speaks of His sheep, the flock of God, the church of God. Verse 27 of John chapter 10 says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. And we understand that in terms of identity. That God's people follow Him. They responded to His voice. But let's notice then what God says. A commitment He's made to His individuals, those whom He's called, His sheep. And I give them eternal life, that they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of My hand. God, who has tremendous power, is going to protect you. And He's going to guide you to bring you to His family. My Father, who has given them to Me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. So we need to have a perspective that is given to us during the days of leavened bread of a responsibility to walk as Christians. But brethren, we also need to have the perspective that as we walk as a servants of God, that God is the one who will ultimately give us success. That God is the one who is going to give us as a gift, the gift of life. That we can get discouraged and we can get down and we can struggle through human problems. But if we continually keep our eyes on God and we go forward, and we recognize that there's a promise of success, then we will have the heart and spirit of Caleb. See, he believed God. And what I'm asking you to do in this sermon is to believe the Scripture. To believe what God has said. Because these are His words. This is His commitment. These are His promises. And brethren, if you believe them and you draw them close to your heart and live with an assurance of the truth of these words... It will strengthen you and it will help you. It will help you put sin out. It will help you to go forward. It will help you because your eyes are not on yourself and your human weakness. Your eyes are on God's promises and the commitment He's made. Here in Hebrews chapter 13, the Apostle Paul also wrote to the Hebrew brethren, 
says, Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do His will. Who's working in our life? Well, it's Jesus Christ. We, in the ministry of God, seek to shepherd God's people. But the great shepherd is Jesus Christ. He's always on the job. You know, sometimes as a ministry, we can become spread very thin. But you always have instant access to Jesus Christ who will shepherd and guide you. It says, working in you what is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. So God works through Christ. And He's doing that, brethren, to bring you into His family, to bring you to salvation. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1 and starting in verse 2, Peter was the one whom God had given the responsibility to first lead the church of God. We also know that he gave his life as a martyr and a servant of God. But brethren, when he led the people of God, he led them with a certain understanding, a certain perspective, a realization, not only of his responsibility, but also, and it's very clear as we read this, of what God was doing. Of how God was working within the church of God among those whom he called out. Let's start here in verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To the pilgrims. He's writing to those who travel, those who are pilgrims on this earth. Those who consider themselves, as Abraham did, a stranger in terms of this earth. Abraham's focus was not on the physical promises God had given to him. Abraham's focus was on the kingdom of God. A city. A city of promise. So he mentions the brethren, from different areas at this time that he served, some in Asia and other areas. He said, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. It covers our area of responsibility, but it also makes it plain. God set us apart. And it is through the blood of Christ that is applied and given to us that we have a relationship with God. He says, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a lively hope or living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he's literally sharing, literally, the blessing and asking God would bless the people. And he's thanking God for what he has done. That God had begotten us again. And that begettle is a promise to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled 
and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. When God calls you, He calls you to salvation. You can read in the Scripture that your name has been written in the book of life. You read in the book of Revelation chapter 3 that God's called you to a certain crown. Christ said, I go to prepare. And He spoke to His disciples of offices or responsibility. God didn't just call you haphazardly. He called you with purpose. He called you with a vision of where you would fit on the team and how you would literally serve Jesus Christ as He brings mankind to salvation. You can only look around you and realize that everything God's hand has touched has reason and purpose and design. The very proof of the living God is in His handiwork. And brethren, if we're not able to see that in our life and understand that God has revealed Himself in so many ways by His creation is dealing with us in the very same manner and we truly do not have our eyes opened. It says, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. Notice how you're kept. It's not by your works or by your strength. It's through faith. It's through belief. For salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. And there are times we go through difficulty and trial. But brethren, if we keep our eyes focused on the purpose of our calling, if we keep our eyes on the message of this day as we look back and realize on this day, the seventh day of the days of leavened bread, God miraculously intervened. That He parted the seas and He provided a path for the children of Israel, a path of safety and a path of life. A path that lead, led literally to their salvation, their physical deliverance. God's given us a path to walk. But brethren, it's through His miraculous intervention that that path leads to life. That same path, in a physical sense, in terms of the Egyptians, was the hand or strength of God that removed an enemy to Israel. And so we need to understand that it's the miraculous intervention of God that gives us that promise of fulfilling our calling. Verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. That's an interesting statement because, see, Peter saw Jesus Christ in the flesh. Peter saw Jesus Christ resurrected. And so he recognized that his calling and how God had dealt in his life was somewhat different than that of those that he now served. And it's certainly true of us. And the statement will be true of each of us that we have not seen the Jesus Christ in the flesh. But whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see Him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end or the goal 
of your faith. And it is the goal of our faith. It is the end. It is the picture, brethren, of the days that we celebrate today. The seventh day of the days of unleavened bread. It is a day in the Bible. was the day of deliverance. And it's very important for us to understand it's God's deliverance that will take place in our life. The end result of that, the goal of that, is the salvation of your souls. So as you literally go through daily life and you're climbing a mountain, and maybe at times we don't clearly see the peak, and we sometimes literally when you get on a mountainside, you come to the point where you don't see behind you well and you don't see ahead of you well. But when you're in that situation, what do you do? You go forward. And it's very important for us to have that same spirit, that same heart, that same belief and faith in God. It's a part of the lesson. It's a part of the events. It was by the hand of God. And brethren, as I said before, these are God's promises. It's His Word. It's what we find given to us as a gift. And it's a gift and a promise that we need to hold tight to as we go through daily life and we face the trials of the coming year. To realize that God's called you to salvation.